Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. Sometimes you have the great pleasure of speaking to someone who makes you look like a bumbling, moronic child who's just wet their pants. In a good way, obviously. And as such, I'd like to introduce you to Stephen Hill. I reached out to Stephen because he's got two absolutely banging articles on Roadrunner Records that he did for Metal Hammer. If you just type in Roadrunner Records, Stephen Hill, you'll come across them. It's basically one about 1993, and uh, one detailing some of the more underappreciated Roadrunner Records that are out there. Stephen also hosts two podcasts, which are near and dear to my heart for a number of reasons. One is We Are The Road Crew, in which he interviews a number of live sound engineers and otherwise from the metal industry. And another one is the Riot Act podcast, which he details as a alternative music podcast. But we go into a bit more detail on that at the start of this. But Stephen knows his shit. He knew right out the gate what I was trying to explore. And I'm eternally grateful for his uh, dialogue and his valuable articulation and memory and all this great stuff. So check out the links in the description for Riot Act. Because if you're a fan of Stephen's way of navigating this subject area, then Riot Act podcast has it in fucking spades. So let's get into it. One, two, fuck shit up. you could could you talk about riot act and we are the road crew yeah yeah sure man um so riot act is an alternative music podcast i mean that's as vague it's kind of deliberately vague like alternative music as a as a sort of concept i guess is has becoming more and more those lines are blurring all the time and so i think it's kind of deliberately vague because like i i love talking about metal i love quote-unquote rock mm. but i like lots of other things as well and i kind of i you get to a certain point where you think, well, I kind of want to talk about as much other stuff as I possibly can. And I sort of found myself post doing a lot of quite metal centric and rock centric stuff. Yeah. Um, and then not doing a few bits of those things, finding myself listening to like, um, well, just music that I listened to when I was a kid. Like I didn't, it took me, it took me as we'll probably discuss in a little bit when we talk about the label. Like I didn't go straight in on rock and metal. Like I really liked Madness and The Cure wow. and U2 mm-hmm. and Madonna and stuff like that. And I don't know if Madonna, like, you know, is Madonna an alternative artist? Like not really, but because it's vague enough, you sort of go, well, Madonna is sort of, she's not a typical pop star. So yeah. you know, would we talk about Madonna right act? Yeah, probably. But I'd quite like to throw it in with, you know, a new obituary album. And I think that's sort of the beauty of it. Cause I don't, like, I, I love the fact that people don't seem to, don't seem to really, uh, the, the people aren't as tribalistic as they used to be, I don't think. And I think that's yeah. good. Oh, totally. I mean, I was I was listening the other week and I was like, I've been waiting for a, a mature conversation about post 2010 Weezer for like <laughs> 10 years. And I was like, I was glowing from like just the comments about how Rivers is sort of orchestrating the band's career now. And I was like, yes, yes. Because to say everything past 2010 or anything past Pinkerton is shit is unacceptable for dialogue for me. And knowing, and it feels like we know that the the pinball aesthetic of as how that band sort of you know touches different genres and stuff it's all by meticulous design and that's what I like to look at and unpack and it gets a speech to the roadrunner stuff in a way because none of this is an accident you know he's doing it for a fucking reason and I think it's I, I just think it's great I think it, it, in a way and this is a really bold statement I think like they're probably one of the most important bands today for that reason one because they're challenging what it means to brand yourself. 
mm. in a band. Also, just the sheer productivity. But to every nine to 18 months of the new album. Mm. And that's very important, really, for me, if you're trying to think about, about how people interface with a band and a brand and how the album cycle works, there is a rhythm to it. Not with Weezer. It's just, let's just get it all out. And well, I think that's really important. And the world, I mean, the world's changed so much. The way that people consume music, the way that people think about music has changed so much. And I think, you know, like... I would like to think that if I'd been in a band for 30 years, that when you hit kind of 20 years of being a band, you could do, I mean, what was funny about that Weezer, I think what was kind of perfect about when we reviewed Van Weezer was that we went straight into talking about Teenage Fan Club afterwards. Now, Teenage Fan Club and Weezer basically are the same, the same band, just from mm. different islands. You know, both of them just continue to make music for years and years and years and years. No one's talking about Teenage Fan Club. Because Teenage Fan Club are, you know, if you if if you want me to sit here with my, you know, sub pop, nineties uh, grunge, you know, uh, th th this music means this and it should be this, and and if you want me to go back, like back then, if you'd, have, I'm sure if you'd have showed Rivers what he was getting up to, now in 1994, I'm sure he would go, oh my god, what am I doing? Yeah. But. And I'm sure Teenage Fan Club would go, yes, good. We've been really, you know, we've stuck to the path and we're, you know, we, we have this kind of artistic credibility and we've never stopped. But, but one of those bands is interesting and the other one isn't. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think come the day of reckoning, like more people will remember Weezer for, you know, Teenage Fan Club is just a band who supported Nirvana in the 90s and they carry mm. on putting out middling kind of alternative rock records. Whereas Weezer... I mean, that's an interest. you know, it's just an interesting thing. And I think it's very easy to go, oh, look at them and be snobby when you're 40 and you mm -hmm. remember how great it was when Pinkerton came out. But like, you know, the world's different. And I think, and you know, you're right. Like, I mean, I appreciate you saying that it was a, a, a kind of mature conversation because I've kind of done a lot of like just slagging stuff off. And I'm kind of bored of just mm -hmm. of, it's deliberately slagging stuff off now. So the challenge to find what is good about this i think is kind of more interesting it might not be more interesting to listen to it's sort of more interesting for me to yeah. go you know like well, i think we did the national and full of hell is always the one that i remember where we did those two together in the yeah. same week and we were like both of these records are absolutely incredible and there's no reason like i was saying there's no reason why you shouldn't like both of those things you just got to be in the mood for one or in the mood for another and you know music should kind of that spectrum should be as vast and as broad as possible so that's kind of what we try and do with Riot Act, I think. I think that's what Rivers is thinking as well. It's like, yeah, yeah. If you're in for a, a post-grunge angst, go back to Blue and Pinkerton. And we know we can deliver that because we did it with the White Album and everything mm. will be all right in the end. We know that. I think he's going 50 years in the future and going, well, the stuff that will come out, the stuff that people will remember will be contextual. Mm. If you want, like, sort of synth pop, sort of with a guitar song structure then yeah, maybe Pacific Daydream will be the album of 2040. But, you know, for the meantime, I'm just having fun, you know, going between these things and churning out an album every nine and 18 months. I think I that's just... People will even think about it as the album of what, you know, it's kind of like we almost exist in moments these yeah. days, don't we? So I would be, I would be, people will remember, you know, them doing Africa, like Toto. I mean, I, I can't get on with the Teal album. It is... Mm awful really like it's 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 awful but you know 
people are going to remember that. And I think it's at least like they elicit strong opinions in people. And I think that's and sort of strong conversations in people. And it's easy to just dismiss them and go, Pinkerton happened and then they were rubbish. And like that's even, I mean, that's obviously not true anyway. But anyone who says that's an idiot, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's post Last Jedi world, isn't it? Yeah, where like there's no tribalism, but there's also on the extreme there's extreme tribal uh, tribalism, yeah. and I think part of our maturity as a race is being able to brand the extreme tribalism as not valuable dialogue, and then we count the minutes we spend on that non valuable dialogue and go, this is wasted fucking time. What can what value can we derive from, say, teal or whatever? Um, but yeah, my point is thumbs up for having a good, good conversations about Weezer and people should Thanks, listen man. to right app for that. Cause it free flows as well. It's, it's good. I mean, I could talk about eval and, and thrash and stuff like that, but, um, I also want to talk about, we are the road crew podcast, which I think is, it's an unsung perspective of the entire industry, which I think you've shown a light on really, um, really well. Yeah. Well, we're going to try and start doing them again. I mean, I, so basically we've, um, my friend, Ben, who uh, I knew from when he used to, he kind of offered up his studio. He's got a really lovely studio in the centre of London uh, called um, Factory Studios, like right in the heart of Oxford Circus. And he kind of offered it out to um, to us when I was doing the previous podcast, when I was doing That's Not Metal, the previous podcast I was mm. doing. And um, he's just a lovely guy. And he kind of got hold of me. He said, I've got this idea, like he's been working, he's worked as a row crew and he's worked in studios his whole life. And he was like, I think these people have really interesting perspectives. And the thing is they do, like you actually find that I think I've always kind of thought that bands, when people say, Oh, you know, you as a reviewer or whatever, what do you know? The band don't think that. Well, I don't actually think sometimes when you make art yourself or when you're in the middle of that stuff, I think sometimes your perspective on that can often be the least interesting perspective on it because you're just, in it it just kind of comes out of you and you know you know people don't always know why they make the art they make or why they do the things they do but i think if you get someone who's really close to that person then they can say kind of a bit more objectively like this was actually what it's like and we've had people like you know peter hints who worked with queen was the first one that we did and he was unbelievable you know he worked with freddie mercury Mm -hmm. every day for about 15 years Mm -hmm. and you know obviously no one can talk to Freddie Mercury now, but that him as a person and him as a, you know, as an icon, you know, he's an unbelievably iconic figure, an unbelievably famous person with so much charisma and such a like very clear public persona. Mm. What you actually really like as a person. And I think you're not going to get that from a journalist. You're not going to get that from somebody who just is a queen super fan you're not going to get that from someone who's watched hours and hours and hours of footage of you know endlessly watched live aid or you know gone through behemoth rhapsody but you might get it from somebody who knew him when they were an unsigned band yeah all the way up to them playing wembley stadium in 1986 and work with them every single day Mm -hmm. so you know if you get the right people on that that show and and more often than not i think though you know that there have been people who have been really interesting who have worked with massive stars people like michael jackson and elton john mm-hmm. and you know sabbath and huge huge eyes but then there have been people who are a bit younger and have worked with smaller artists but you can kind of see how excited they are at the idea of you know because it's it's a dream job for a lot of people working in music. It's not ever something, if you're a fan of music that you should take for granted. Yeah. And it's great to talk to someone who's like, you know, Oh, I came up working with Enter Shikari. I came up working with, you know, even young blood or the 1975 or sports team or some of these newer bands, but still 
gets as excited by the idea of that as you know someone who spent their you know their teens drum teching for black sabbath like that's that's <laughs> amazing so yeah i i mean i'm i'm glad you think it's an un, a kind of uh you know i'm glad you think it's a kind of um an unsung podcast yeah. I don't really hear many people like not many people talk to me about it online or anything but some people I'm, i think we get like few people listen to it i think but it it's maybe not a sexy sounding yeah things, but it's it's cool it's really cool like i can give you i can try and give people an entry point from my perspective because i do live sound as well in a much sort of more baby capacity um but i was speaking to another engineer who worked a foo fighters gig and this is the comparative experience so i've worked with bands who spent 45 minutes at sound check and do doing a line check simply just making sure things work screaming bawling throwing fists you know everything you can imagine and then when you speak to some of the experienced guys it's like oh yeah the foo fighters yeah it was a 15 minute line check and then just take those two experiences and go all right well what's the difference between those those two perspectives of those two artists what world are they living in which generates that kind of output that's kind of what those are the kind of questions which are explored on that podcast obviously not necessarily exactly as i've presented them but that's the world they live in and that's kind of the the, the personas and the, the it's the social environment they need to navigate to get the job done mm. because the getting the job done it turns out is actually really fucking hard yeah well i mean it's always better the show when people are willing to kind of open up on because you know ultimately you do want to go like i wonder what that artist is like. i mean like, there was somebody once i won't say who it was but there was somebody who was quite a bit like oh i'm still working with this band and i kind of called him out so can i not can you cut that bit of the podcast out and i was a bit like ah oh, that's a real shame because mm. it was a really good insight into um um a big hollywood a-list <laughs> uh superstar who may or may not be let's call his band 40 minutes to saturn and <laughs> um but yeah who may or may not be an absolute dickhead uh but yeah he may just cut, cut it out so that's a bit of a shame but you know i can understand that because obviously he's still working in that environment yeah 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 it happens a lot i mean um one you're talking about i mean talking about artists and their perspective and how you know they're the one behind the guitar making sort of the aura happen this kind of leads quite nicely into the roadrunner stuff because a lot of the bands i interview some of their tenures were exactly long with roadrunner their thoughts on roadrunner as a as a label were um aren't too favorable but some are also like oh yeah we did one album then got dropped but we understand the <clears throat> interfacing between the band and the machine that is roadrunner and the vehicle that it was for such important metal and such groundbreaking stuff um and i think that's the genesis of this project is understanding that because it did things which no other label has done it made certain things viable which weren't viable previously and it's not i don't i, I should really do the maths on it but in terms of gold records and platinum records i don't think there's a lot from many other labels i think roadrunner is like the chief uh body which generated that kind of output i mean i know we don't really care about sales but it, it does say something and for me if you take the trajectory of Rodron and what it did, if you take it to its logical conclusion, let's assume it's still independent today, what would metal be like today if you still had uh, Platinum Artists being generated from the fringes of music and having a seat at the table and disrupting the industry status quo? So really, the project is taking the learnings of that journey. Obviously, there's a historical context and there's some rock and roll stories and some sexy context in there. But for me, it's about well, how do we as our generation learn from how they administered their metal? Mm. So 
jumping into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When did you like discover Roadrunner as like an entity, as a as a, call it a brand, call it a thing? When did that little candy bar logo become synonymous with other things? For I you, think probably for me. Um, I mean, uh, I, that I sort of said, uh, I sort of hinted at earlier. Even when I got into guitar music during, I guess probably the the grunge boom, and then yeah. probably into like pop punk as well so or skate punk as you have to call it now to <laughs> differentiate it from you know awful stuff uh and i do remember you know sub pop and epitaph were probably the first time that i paid attention to the idea of a label you mm. know um and um i mean particularly epitaph at that time because offspring rancid uh and bad religion no effect anyways down by law, all that kind of stuff was was really big in my school. And so I'd never really thought about a label before, probably until I thought about Sub Pop and until I thought about Epitaph. And um, when I started thinking about wanting to get into heavier music, I would sort of was sort of saying to people, like, you know, what, what should I listen to? Metallica being a really kind of obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw Roots by Sepultura get, I think it got to number two or three in the UK album chart, which is <clears throat> unbelievable. Like, do you know what I mean? That is, mm. in, like, the thing of that today, that is an incredible thing to happen. Sepultura at number two in the UK yeah. album chart. In the 90s, when by all accounts metal was dead and no one cared about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, unbelievable. Yep. In the UK, madness. So I was like, I should probably check this band out. I think I've said it a whole bunch of times before, but I saw the video for Ratamahata on the chart, the now defunct chart show on ITV. And I bought the single for that. And I used to get Kerrang! a lot. And I think I, I probably didn't pay attention to Roadrunner, the label on the Ramahat single. But once I heard that, I was like, oh, fucking hell. And I saw they were playing the Donington Monsters of Rock in 1996. Now, if you look at that last Monsters of Rock at Donington in 96, you've got Sepultura, Fear Factory, Dog Eat Dog, um, biohazard and typo negative so like pretty much half the bill is roadrunner bands and i remember sort of looking at that and being like hmm and those five bands i mean as as a period of time for that that as a kind of microcosm as an example of the breadth of roadrunner records typo negative dog eat dog fear factory sepultura biohazard five bands who basically have nothing musically in common Mm. but a slight kind of veer into you could go oh dog day sunrise on the manufacturer by fear factory is a little bit goth a little bit like yeah, yeah. negative oh dog eat dog kind of came through the hardcore scene a bit like biohazard did but mm-hmm. there's not a lot of like crossover in sound in between those five bands but yet weirdly like some kind of odd dysfunctional family they all kind of they all kind of look the same do you know what I mean? They all yep. kind of, even though they didn't really, they didn't sound anything like each other and they didn't actually look like each other or act like each other, but they all kind of felt weirdly connected in some way. You could join the dots from Dog Eat Dog to Biohazard to Fear Factory to Sepultura to type in that. You could kind of do that. And mm-hmm. I think I saw in Kerrang some sort of advert for Roadrunner Records at this, you know, at Donington with those five artists being shown and they had all these other things. And you suddenly see all the artwork from, Life of Agony, Obituary, Deicide, mm-hmm. um, Machine Head, like, and you go, oh, they're all on the same label. All these bands that I keep getting told are really cool and they're in Kerrang all the time and they appear to be on the same record label. 
And yeah. Roadrunner, like, you know, they were marketing wise, they were super, super clever at that time because the Drill in the Vein video, when that came out and they had all their, you know, kind of a package video of all the stuff they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could buy two albums for like, Twelve ninety nine or something, so you could get like cheap versions of it if you bought the video, and then you get the video for two quid or something. Or they're like two for twenty two quid, and then you could get like the video. I didn't know this. Um, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. I didn't know the deals went down to like retail level. I know yeah. they always did like loads of promo stuff, um, loads of videos, and and um, I think there was like there was like themed compilations like Breaking Barriers uh, and um, Christ what was the RC one? <clears throat> um, it was like a death metal one. Um, the pain compilation or something like that with all the death metal there but yeah i didn't know they they were like let's let's actually let's maybe cut our gains a little bit and bundle these together in the shops yeah i mean you would walk into i mean it's like you know like a virgin megastore that didn't have a metal section so everything was rock and pop and then you have the dance section this is kind of pre them having a rock and metal section in a lot of the shops and i walked in and you're like you gotta flick through like oh if i want to find a machine head album i gotta flick through mark morrison and morrissey and do you know what i mean just to get to see if i can find machine head but <laughs> but then like you walk in and there's a display and it's just roadrunner records and you're like oh uh, i like sepultura what else is here and then there's they're in front of you and you're like well if i've got 22 quid i can get a vhs video and two albums from this band and then suddenly boom you're in it was incredibly clever but it would have meant very little if those albums weren't amazing you know sure. and the, the i think the beauty of when i look back at people talk about the kind of iconic record labels from metal sort of uh, early era into the kind of going into the sort of the the, the pay dirt of new metal and whatever um they're all quite specific. Do you know what I mean? Like relapse is quite a, you've got stuff like neurosis and the red cord or, yeah. uh, you know, the locust on, on, on relapse, like extreme shit. Earache was mostly death metal, mostly kind of grind core. Yeah. And metal blade again, you know, you've got lots of thrash, the early on, like lots of thrash stuff on, on metal blade and, but Roadrunner or like victory records, just loads of hardcore bands. Whereas, and I mentioned kind of epitaph and sub pop and, you know, like very specific styles of music. Mm. Whereas Roadrunner, I would thought the beauty of it was you've got death metal bands, like really like early adopters of death metal, you know, mm-hmm. shit like Suffocation. And I mentioned like Obituary and Deicide being on that label yeah. as well. But then you've also got Dog Eat Dog and Shelter. So you've got these really fun and, and, and stuff like Junkie XL. Mm-hmm. who went on to do the Elvis. Like, I've got Saturday Teenage Kick. Like, why would I have bought that record? I bought it because it was on Roadrunner. It's the only reason I bought it. Like, it's a dance album. It's a fucking dance album. Yeah. A full-blown dance album. And, and again, weird, like, Dino Cazares from Fear Factory plays on that record. Like, yeah. again, it's a kind of weird little incestuous world. You think, well, those things don't really have that much to do with each other. But they made them have stuff to do with each other because they were on Roadrunner. And even though it's a really, really brilliantly eclectic roster that they had at that time, it all still felt connected as well. So it's a really difficult balancing act that they pulled off, I think. One thing I can't, I can't understand the, um, the entry point to is the death metal bit. Um, because we've got all those Florida death metal bands and we've got Morris Sound Studios and Scott Burns and we've got the legacy afterwards. And we've got those like family trees that it comes from. But I don't know what possessed them to go 
I'm trying to find a, a pattern where there is none. I think that's the problem. Uh, I, I don't know why Monty Connor and, and is sat there going, okay, I want obituary, I want deer side, and I want these. And they're all, I, I keep thinking that they're all some sort of package. They're obviously not. I think that the chronology of it is they're just pick bands they liked. And by chance, the Morris Sound guys just gave a shit about how it sounded. So those things just worked as a package production, uh, a, a package production delivery vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's as you say, it's it is weirdly by design in terms of things that are interconnected. But at the same time, at that time with the label, especially ninety five, ninety six, is when they're actually investing in massive diversification. Um, they acquire third mine records for frontline assembly, which is what gives birth to that fear factory sound. They've got dance imprints that aren't very successful, but junkie XL somehow manages it. Um, but it, it is interesting when we talk about night five, night six and those lineups where there is certainly a, like a, a road on a package, but no one remembers all the other stuff that was going on around it. Like, star star and blue mountain which was like a like a country band and a, like a folk band and things like that it yeah yeah don't remember that yeah it's it's it's, it's bonkers basically <laughs> but one thing you've you touched on something that's really important um when i do that sort of u.s studies the uh the retail side of things it's obviously managed by the distribution arm of the business and back then it was important record distributors slash sony red those are that's the company that did it and i always try and pick and pick about well how did we utilize you know the roadrunner brand and how do we get that sold in shops and there's a lot of interesting stories about like the campaign to get bloody kisses gold in the states which was fucking huge um but you've touched on the uk experience because i never knew that there were those bundles together. I know who was distributing them. I think it was Pinnacle. But now I'm going to have to have conversations on that front and figure out what was by design and what was just the distributor going, yeah, I just we just have these relationships with Virgin Megastore. Let's put these up on front. Because it is massively important, especially when you think about the acquisition of artists, which is like the advance isn't amazing. There might be a better deal at Metablade. There might be a better deal at Relapse or something like that. But this is what talk. This is what speaks to how Roadrunner is a viable vehicle for a certain brand. Can Roadrunner deliver your band up to the mainstream? Or does it have a better chance than anyone else? Yes. How do we know? Because of all these different marketing things, which they've got the fingerprints all over. It's mad. Yeah, I mean, they they were definitely, definitely the best at doing that. Like without yeah. doubt. I mean, I. <sighs> It's mad to think, you know, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I've sort of known Monty Connor a little bit now, which is pretty weird when I consider it, because I looked at Monty Connor like, this is the, this is the guy. He's like the mastermind of this huge, massive like imprint label that, you know, in my mind, maybe this is kind of naivety as a as a young as a young man, but I kind of imagined Roadrunner Records to be this you know, the, the only metal label that was run in a, you know, in a, a massive skyscraper building with, you know, people in suits. And do you know what I mean? Like I, in my head, I was like, well, Roadrunner's different to everything else. Road, you know, Earache, yeah, you run that out of the back of your garage or whatever. And even Epitaph, like selling <laughs> 7 million copies of Smash, I still was like, oh, it's Brett Gerwitz in his shed, like, you know, kind of folding things. And I'm sure, you know, there's 
there's a definite middle ground between both those things. But Roadrunner, to me, like they, I think they just sort of presented themselves like a major label. Mm. I always considered Roadrunner to be, even when they weren't really, I always sort of considered, you know, in my mind, they felt like a major label. If a band signed to Roadrunner, a metal band, immediately you're like, well, they've got an unbelievable chance of, mm. of doing something. Of cracking. Yeah. yeah. Whatever that is, you know. The, the, so you're on. Well, I was going to say, and it's kind of crazy when you think that there's not many bands that you can think of, but, but I think the ones that are, are huge and had to be on big labels. I mean, you think like System of a Down ended up being on American and having the sort of backing of Rick Rubin, which was mm-hmm. huge. Corn were on Epic, which, you know, is a, is a massive label. Deftones on, were on Maverick, which is owned by Madonna. So unless you were on, and it's hard to think of any of the other, any other bands who around that period who managed to have that kind of impact. I mean, those bands sort of stick out because purely because they weren't on Roadrunner. You almost mm. look at them and go like, oh, isn't it mad that they did that without being on Roadrunner? I was always a bit weirded out that like Deftones weren't on Roadrunner. And I know there are some artists like you mentioned too. I'm sure Glassjaw would be like, like fuck off. I don't want to talk about it sort of thing. But, <laughs> um, but you know, they had to go on a, on a major for, um, for uh, for their next records after splitting with just you know and even that at the time uh it didn't feel like as big a deal that second glass year record than the first one did purely because i don't know it just they weren't on roadrunner anymore yeah it, it's the more i unpick the mechanics of it the more interesting it gets because i when you first at surface level you think case vessels bell fucking dutch um dutch businessman a uh, veteran uh, of the music industry builds a house and fills it with metal items, and that's kind of that's the model and then the more you get into the characters like monte Connie, you start assuming like a gandalf bilbo relationship you start assuming there's like a there's like a stringent mentorship in terms of what happened and there is something there but case he was predominantly focused on the business aspect of the label. And he really just let the nutters run the madhouse in terms of the metalheads who actually occupy those buildings. But he also had a hand in absolutely everything. You couldn't spend a penny without his signature. Mm. So there were some restrictions in there. And it'd be good to understand like where uh, the dynamics between Monty and Case as to how he'd convince Case to sign off on certain bands. Because his, his batting rate is remarkably high for an A&R person, remarkably high. It's a very dark art. And if it's... I couldn't even say exactly how many misses he's had. Because misses is, is a disingenuous term because you don't miss in A&R. The band just responds to a different incentive, which is somewhere else. But the amount of bands which he did get and then turned a profit is much higher than most people in that industry. Not just metal, but across the board. It's pretty phenomenal mm. i mean his that that particularly that well i mean even when you get into i'm not sure if he was still there for was he still there during trivium i mean definitely for kill switch he was still there um, he was there up until 2012 so yeah he was yeah. he was there um, for, for trivium so even when you think you know when the 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 it, it, it was becoming a lot harder i think in the in the sort of mid noughties to still have that impact i think there was a little kind of wobble um at the turn of the millennium and actually that on reflection stuff like 36 crazy fists and chimera 
maybe not downer, but like, you know, there was a little period where they signed a few bands where you're like, ah, oh, this is not really happening in the same way as it mm. was. But then to come back with, you know, Killswitch Engage, and I mean, Killswitch Engage and Trivium are obviously the two big ones from that period. <laughs> so yeah. still, you know, like, Three Inches of Blood, it's a great record. Fucking love it. You know, like, um, and then, and then I suppose that's when he signed stuff like Porcupine Tree and Megadeth, who are a bit more kind of legacy. That was um, Mike Gitter, Megadeth. Right, okay. Yeah, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, you know, but then in, in like Corn sign on as well, don't they? Lamb have got you starting to get bands who are a bit more established rather than, mm. you know, his last one was. Bands themselves. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the last one he did, just to give you an idea of the timeline, was Gajera. That was his last signing to Roadrunner. Mm. Uh, there's a good story about that on um, Rob Flynn's podcast where he, oh, he goes okay. on to that. And um, everyone in the room was like, this is that, it's fucking brilliant. This is like, this is a game changer. Well done, Monty. You did it again, boy. And then Case was like there with his head in his hands, like, what the fuck have you done? Because he just didn't see it. That's how it was, that dynamic was. Like, Case could veto anything. He didn't on that time, but it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, there is something to be said about the pre-2000 and post-2000 period. And uh, the biggest catalyst for that is Slipknot and Nickelback, um, which I'm sure we'll come to at some point. But let's, let's, I wanted to ask you, because for me, the defining, the defining sort of era for, for Roadrunner was that Trivium one. Because I, to answer my own question, which is when I realized they were an entity, was when I found out that, God forbid, weren't on Roadrunner. When uh, Constitution of Treason was out, and I was like, this isn't Roadrunner. This is so strange because it, it, it seemed like aesthetically, like really well matched. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what's your sort of era, defining era of, of Roadrunner? Because a lot of people will say that 90s were the, were the heyday. And I'm thinking, well, for you, yeah, you know, but. Yeah, I mean, it's probably pretty obvious that I would say that if anyone's ever listened to me speak about anything before. Um, but I also think it's kind of quite difficult to argue the facts that, you know, that is a period where, like I say, you've got the only metal festival in the UK and half of the bill is bands on Roadrunner and they're not anything like each other. I mean, you can chuck in Machine Head as well. Um, I mentioned Shelter. I mean, there's stuff that, there's stuff that came out that maybe didn't even get hugely popular. Like I'll probably talk about Vision Imprint by Vision Disorder and Mm. Vision Disorder album. Like, unbelievable records um i mean you know and even cold chamber were like yeah now you look cold chamber a bit hokey now but cold chamber were massive they were massive Mm. and um yeah you you know i think it's you know it felt like every definitive metal band i think you could look at you could look at the mid noughties period and you could probably go, well, actually, with, with Bullet, Bullet was, did the Poison didn't come out? That was on Red Runner, was it? No, uh, I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> so when you think of, like, the big bands from the mid-noughties in metal, like, a lot of them were, like, you know, Trivium and Killswitch were on that label, but then Avenged and Bullet weren't, if you're going to call mm-hmm. them kind of big four. Whereas in the 90s, maybe just before Corn coming out, Machine, I suppose Pantera, like Pantera, kind of, I guess, would be the kind of outlier in that as well. That Pantera went on the label, but 
and neither was Slayer. I feel like I'm now totally remembering, <laughs> kind of totally undermined myself. In terms of like newer bands, so Pantera have been around for, but if you go to kind of 94, when Pantera are suddenly on their third album, but you've got Burn My Eyes coming out, you've got Chaos AD coming out. I know obviously it's a bit more of a slow burn for Sepultura, but Chaos AD and you mentioned Bloody Kisses and River Runs Red and like Mantra by Shelt was about to come out. All Borough Kings by Doggy Dog was a debut. The manufacturer broke about a year later, and you have sort of Solon of the New Machine coming the year before that. It's just an unbelievable, like, create fertile, creative period for bands on their first record or their first couple of records or their kind of commercial breakthrough. It felt like everybody broke almost within the space of about 18 months. All these yeah. records that are now considered legitimate genre classics kind of broke in that period between kind of mid 93 or kind of the first half of 93 into the sort of end of 1994 when you look at everything that came out in that period it's unbelievable i mean it's really really like the hottest hot streak you can imagine i think even if you go to the mid like there's a, a bit of a gap between alive or just breathing and ascendancy it's probably about 18 months but nothing that you would really go well that is an all-time True. Nobody can deny. Nobody can deny that that is a classic metal record. I mean, I'll give you those two, and I think End of Heartache probably came out just after Ascendancy or quite soon after Ascendancy as well. Just before, think, like about four or five months before. Yeah. Okay. Right. I knew it's sort of similar time, yeah, yeah. but but those that's two bands and three records as opposed to you know lots of records by lots of different bands. Hmm. Yeah, it's, well, it's, I find it hard to kind of look past that. Although I wanted to give a quick shout out to the kind of the, just the tail end, of the, sort of Slipknot happening alongside um, some bands that I think probably could have been bigger deals. If maybe, I mean, I said Glassjaw, Amen would be another one as well. There were a bunch of bands around that period, I think, that were, were really good on the label as well, but just probably didn't hit commercially as much as they might have wanted them to. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you make the comparison of, of like there's hot streaks because my my thing with with the sort of 2005 era I call it just because when I was 16, I think it is having a streak, a kind of streak, as not quite as as acute, uh, not quite as compressed a streak, but in a space which is dealing with a perceived oversaturation. Um, metal's becoming a bit more vogue. It's becoming less fringe. Um, we're dealing with a digital revolution, which is killing the revenue stream. I think that's why I think it's it's a tale of perseverance more than innovation um, in that particular era. Um, but yeah, I think when you put it like that, you are absolutely right. These are all debuts. These are all like, uh, it's, it's, a t- it's a tale of artist development, isn't it, really? Um, and it's a tale of recognizing potential and and exploiting it to remarkable success um and this is only six years after the six seven years after the u.s office opens and roadrunner moves from like a 10-person operation to more mm. it's it is quite it is quite remarkable and again it's just about me trying to unpick that and, and obviously finding patterns where there are none but the the biggest thing is that the people there really give a massive fuck about the bands a massive fuck and it, it's because it's dawning on me now that that was usually the difference between the road of the bands which did really well and the ones that didn't 
it's usually because there was a champion of person. There's a few personnel in the company that were just championing these two people or these the two bands or whatever. Like I was speaking to Mark Abramson last week um, about the Bloody Kisses gold campaign because that's what it was. It was a sustained campaign. It wasn't a fluke. It was Case sitting down with the head of sales and Mark Abramson uh, saying, right, I want a gold record now, lads. What do you reckon? And they pick from the list of that artist and go, typo negatives, you won. We're going to get the credibility for the label now. Let's do it. Then Mark Ebbson just fucking loves Typo to death, has a great relationship with the band, just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes. And that's what generated that repertoire and that credibility that the label in case really wanted at that point. Well, it's an unbelievable, like, by the way, an unbelievable gold record to get of your first gold record. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I again, I will speak, anyone who speaks to me for more than about four minutes knows that type of negative are pretty much I think are the best thing that's ever happened to the planet but um you know like they're fucking unbelievable but they're so unique and I think again that's you know to get a band that unique a gold record it's not like I mean you know I were it to have been um burn my eyes say was the first gold record like burn my eyes is an absolutely phenomenal record an incredible mm. record but burn my eyes is is a metal record you know it's a kind of groove metal record and there were plenty of them around at the time there's nothing like type of negative and i think that was the kind of beauty of, of like i don't think type of negative could have been on another label you couldn't have had type of negative on ear records it wouldn't have made any sense like it, they then they wouldn't have fit in amongst any of their other even though they kind of come through black metal and hardcore a bit type of negative the band just would not fit on that label at all. And yeah. that's, uh, again, you know, that's the kind of beauty of, uh, I always thought the beauty of Roadrunner is, not only did they find massive, unique metal bands, they found metal bands, that they made people successful who really had kind of no right to be successful. Slipknot don't really have the right to be as, like Iowa was number one, number one, the biggest album of a week when, the Strokes album came out like, I mean, if you were there and you remember the hype for The Strokes, it was, I mean, inescapable hype for The Strokes. And and people also, I mean, it seems ridiculous to say now, but for the boy band Five, you know, they were they were massive. That boy bands were massive at that time. And yeah. Five were like Britain's answer to NSYNC or whatever. And this fucking bunch of loons in masks with blast beats were bigger than both of them. Yeah, it's just it 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 couldn't happen again. Yeah, and people like to go, oh, it couldn't happen. It was a great time because oh, I wouldn't happen anymore, and look back like the kind of Hallison days. But that's never going to happen again. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think um, to speak again on the Bloody Kisses campaign, it was they are a band like no other, and this is why the struggle to get it. And I'm going to call it a struggle to get it gold is so remarkable because. Because no one wanted, to, it was a lot of it was driven by radio. Yeah. Not no one wanted to play Black Number One. They were like, "This isn't going to vibe." And it was down to the team and the relationships they built with the industry to say, "No, play it, play it, play it, play it, play it." We're we're really pushing this, and I think that just speaks again to the tenacity of um, the brand. I hate using the word brand because I, I know I'm shilling for a company, but when I use the word brand, it feels dirtier. Um, it, it speaks to the tenacity of the company to say this weird shit. We're pushing it. And we're not going to relent. And I think that's, again, some of the speech of the Slipknot experience. But let's talk about the the elephant in the room about an indie metal label that goes platinum uh, twice in about 
less than a year, maybe six months. So we got Slipknot and we've got Nickelback Silverside up as well. Yeah. Um, that to me is, is, is an incredible catalyst for the label. It's, it's, it comes at a time where um, things start to go slightly. It, the, the very start of them being acquired by Warner starts in that six month, t- uh, 12 month period. Um, once they were acquired by, or partially acquired by Def Jam, so all of a sudden the management incentive structures changed, which then carries on. And then the personnel from Universal go to Warner, which creates the, the Warner acquisition. And then we end up in 2012 when it all goes over. The one thing I observed from that particular period is once you become, once an independent has a platinum or once an independent has million sales, your profit and loss sheets are year on year are going to change. So the year that Iowa comes out, you're in the the black and everything's great. But the next year, if you've not got another Iowa coming out, you don't look as you don't look as good. You know, you've gone from platinum to we're back to doing indie stuff this this year, and then we've got silver side. Well, we got the Nickelback follow up the following year, and we're back up again. And I think this is where it starts to go on to not to shaky ground, but it's the incentive structure changes. The people in the building understand that things aren't quite what they were. Um, but yeah, let's just talk about the explosion of those two bands. So one thing, cause I don't know that cause I was, I was, I was 10. <laughs> so I, I understood that there were some people with Slipknot hoodies at school, but I didn't get it until say like uh, volume three, right. but the, the watershed moment appears to be Ozfest 99. Yeah, I mean, the Slipknot thing was was pretty was pretty mad. I mean, obviously it was pretty mad. Um, but uh, they just sort of. I was very cynical when I first saw Slipknot. I had got to. I was nineteen, and I had heard a lot of bands. Like I got into Corn probably around the time that we're talking about Sepulchre and all that kind of stuff. I've got yeah. into Corn and Love Corn. And then suddenly you start, and then I heard Deftones, and then I heard Incubus probably, and then that became Cold Chamber, which became Spine Shank, which became like, yeah, this is not as good actually. So I think System of Down, I think I've said before, like System of Down sort of shook me out of that stupor for new metal for a little bit. But I did start, you started seeing the way that, Cold Chamber dressed and you know Static X, Static X were a band that I actually quite liked, but silly hair and not, <laughs> you know silly dressed up a bit silly. Everyone looks a bit like ludicrous and cartoony at this point. Yeah, and these guys could turn up with these masks and you're like, oh here we go, like yeah 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 fine <laughs> whatever, like another bunch of <laughs> um, but. That even you know it wasn't even the internet then you know it wasn't even like there was people were on twitter posting videos of slipknot at the ozfest or whatever but despite that they kind of went they did go sort of viral i mean a lot of it was through kerrang and metal hammer mm-hmm. because there was every they'd have i don't know if you remember this but in kerrang they'd have like a column from this or they have like a road report from the ozfest or and just the odd little bits here and there where you'd be going oh it's really mad that isn't it? and my mate went to america for the summer in 1999 he came back wearing a slipknot t-shirt and we went to a rock club in reading and when i realized i was like fucking hell people are really going mad for this band he wore his slipknot shirt mm-hmm. 
it's before the album came out. He wore a Slipknot shirt in a rock club in Reading, and someone offered him 150 quid if he took it off then, and he would have swapped t-shirts with him. And he was like, "I'll go and get 150 quid out of the cash machine now if you give me that t-shirt." And he was like, "Nah, I'm not doing that," because um, he was walking around in some other guy's sweaty t-shirt. Probably. But um, but it was but it was that was when I was like, "Fucking hell, people are really going for this." And I I bought I bought Slipknot self-titled album on the day it came out, and I remember being like quite kind of arms folded, like go on then impress me. Mm. And as soon as you heard it, it was like, Oh, okay. Well, yeah, fair enough. You are really good. I mean, you are really <laughs> good. And, um, you know, I saw And yeah, the, the people were chatting about, you know, you heard the stories about sniffing crows, dead crows in a jar. Corey wasn't allowed to talk on the Ozfest until he got on stage. You know, there were kind of videos, like stills of videos popping up in of them playing live in Kerrang and stuff. They were saying they toss, flip a coin and punch each other in the face. I went to the Astoria show, the first UK show. I was at that and it was quite a thing to see them come out. I mean, weirdly, it's it's gone down as this legendary gig. It, you know, it, it actually, they weren't as good as, they, they weren't actually as good as the world makes it out. It wasn't actually as good as the world makes out to be that gig. Like mm-hmm. the sound was atrocious. You couldn't hear what they were doing. You couldn't hear what they were playing. They were all over the place. It was a mess. I mean, it was really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say they were actually that good. Like, no, <laughs> they were like a good band. They weren't a tight band. It was, it was a fucking chaos. Yeah. It was just pure chaos. And I was like, I don't know what the song is. I, like Corey can barely sing with the like they were teams going crazy and you you know you couldn't breathe through the mask and stuff. I still think they were sort of finding their feet weirdly. Mm-hmm. Like, but they you know they'd only been playing. For about it's only about a year since they were playing these songs live and you know to be selling out this store but it was i mean it was it was crazy it was absolutely yeah. crazy like it used to be you go to the astoria and you'd queue up about an hour before the gig and i went down there um i used to go to london sort of the day of the gig and i went down there at about two o'clock we walked past the astoria and there were people in masks hanging off of the building like in boiler suits and it was just it was like it's the closest thing to i mean people always go oh it's like beatlemania and all this but it was it was genuinely the closest thing i've seen in metal to some kind of beatlemania like spice girls fucking michael jackson chaos (laughs) it's It's the only time i've ever seen that with any band like metallica made like whoever like i've never seen I've never seen that before. I sometimes think a label's job is to it's to create the atmosphere that you'd have before that gig, which is like there's a massive buzz, there's something going on here. And obviously Slipknot delivered that delivered that in absolute fucking spades because a lot of the conversation and all the dialogue from them at the time was like, it's all about the artist and it's about the artistic integrity. They're all in boil suits and masks, and there's like a, a there's a familial dysfunction to the whole thing, which was just super fucking compelling to the average listener as well. And that all boils up into just nut jobs in fucking boil suits banging up fucking buildings, like you say. Yeah. It's and it's getting them on like shit, like getting them on TFI Friday, like you know, and and getting them like playing top of the pops and stuff. It's like you've brought this band on here to gawp at them and laugh. Like, really, let's be honest. Chris Robin's got got Napalm Death on because he's like, ah, look at the funny band. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
when they went on TFI Friday, they were, they were going on there because everyone was like, "Ooh, this is weird, isn't it?" it they, you know, they were there as, as a freak show. But I think what people, what those people in the mainstream probably didn't anticipate was that by doing that and by kind of treating them as this weird thing, all they were really doing was stoking the, was exposing them and stoking the kind of the thing in people that made them like for so for all the people who would have been sat at home, you know. Like they did when, like when Baby Metal played Stephen Colbert, and you saw loads of quotes going, "Sack your music, Booker." I'm sure there were like hundreds of people. This is, who great. Went, this is amazing. Yeah, this is what well, I've been waiting for this for so long, and then even more so in a kind of pre-internet age to see Slipknot st- and, and their fans nick a camera on TFI Friday on a Friday. Like, if, if you're a suburban kid who has heard a few Nirvana songs or, you know, like is aware of Marilyn Manson or Hole or whatever, or, you know, whatever was big at that time to see that you're not going to be going like, Oh, this is just, oh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm calling off com. No, fuck that. You're going to be like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it, it, I think like that kind of, as a, as a, that thing in our heads that, that relates to that kind of stuff, it goes all the way to 2006 with hard rock. Hallelujah. Yeah. It is a, it's a fuck you, isn't it? Really? Yeah. To yeah. some people, it's, as you say, what is this? Poke, poke it a little bit. For some people, it's like, oh, this is a massive fuck you to this shit that's been on every Friday for the last five fucking years. It's boring me to death. Yeah, yeah it's, that's you, what, how you, There's not many of those things. There's like, like you said, no. there's that, there's Rage getting to, Rage Machine getting to number one, Christmas number one, Slipknot on TFI on Friday. There's not a lot of those things, you know? There's mm. not a lot of them. I mean, when you think like, I don't know, it's such a different thing because I, I look at like Sepultura on the word, Sepultura or Corrosion and Conformity played on the word on Channel mm-hmm. Four. You think, well, that's that should be a big thing. But actually, that kind of felt a bit more normal because the word was supposed to be anarchic and stuff. Whereas TFI Friday, you know, you're getting like <laughs> Jerry Halliwell coming on as a guest, and it's all you know, Jules Holland and stuff like that. And their musical guests were usually <laughs> someone like clean someone. cookie cutter. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it did feel like. You know, and it was on at sort of six o'clock in the evening as opposed to 11 o'clock at night. So it did feel like, a, I think that was a massive thing. But yeah, like they just, I, I don't, I mean, it's not even when I said, oh, it couldn't happen now. I think if a band came along and tried to behave the way that Slipknot did now, I don't think people would, I think mm. people would be too cynical to even allow them to do that. But they were such a, I mean, they were just so, even if you didn't quite buy into it, you had to go like, like fair play to them for like, they are not doing anything by half measures. Mm. And I think the label, like to go kind of tie it back into Roadrunner, you'd been having kind of um, re- like slightly diminishing returns for a few years. Like I say, Fear Factory had become spike, Coal Chamber had become spine chunk. So mm. that, those, that, those bands are not as revered. They're not selling as much. And let's be honest, they're not as good, right? And then Slipknot come along and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, Roadrunner's still cool. And then yeah. you get shit like, you know, Glassjaw on the Workhorse Movement coming a year or so later, which it, it don't have the same impact as Slipknot do when what could really, but but still, you know. It like, gives them the, the... I was like, oh, yeah, you've got a bit of a second wind here. That's how I felt. Underground credibility yeah maintains yeah how are you doing for time I've, I've this has gone really quick that's all right don't worry um i'm fine continue perfect 
Excellent. Um, let's talk a little bit about Nickelback because these are the two totem poles which saw this era is bookended by. Did you have reverence for Nickelback in any way? Or would... No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I, oh God, what to say about Nickelback? I mean, I'm not surprised they're big because mm-hmm. they, know, they know their way around a um, stupid hook, don't they? But, um, <laughs> but, they're not, I mean, I don't want to listen to Nick. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to listen to Nickelback. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I, I understand that there are people who, I know like when Nickelback came out and it was a whole thing, like they've stripped Soundgarden of all of the nuance and heart and blah, blah, blah. And that is true. Like they are essentially like, I guess a kind of post grunge band. Yes. Um, grunge was, grunge was, you know, again, in 1990, 2000, 2001, grunge was not cool. Mm-hmm. Grunge was very, very uncool. And I think like all of the bands who were kind of like the big four of that, it was only really Pearl Jam who was still doing anything, essentially, wasn't it? And they were very much not a grunge band anymore. And you've also got kind of no like, screaming trees and split up and mud honey weren't really doing anything. And it, yeah, it was just, it was looked at as a bit of a relic. But then what was left were bands like Bush and Sustainable Pilots a bit as well. And I think, you know, like I actually like both of those bands, but there's still, when, when you get to kind of Creed, Days of the New and Creed and that kind of thing, which is a bit more kind of American radio rock as opposed to anything to do with punk rock, I'm not really going to be that interested in that. I mean, even though Soundgarden is sort of famously like Zeppelin meets Black Sabbath, they're still a punk band. Like they still started off as a punk band. I think if you take that away from that, then what you've got basically is like just kind of quite angsty sounding seventies hard rock, which is what Nickelback were. But Nickelback were almost like more like eighties glam in a, in a mood. And I was like, no, (laughs) this, um, I, I I think they're, I don't want to say they're rubbish, I think they're rubbish, but I don't necessarily think they're bad at making music. I totally can understand the appeal. I mean, people. Yep. Look- yeah, it's it's totally accessible, um, and I think this is this is a something this is something which I think Roadrunner wanted in the nineties. They wanted something accessible and contemporary to keep the fucking lights on. Maybe not to keep the lights on, but to innovate. But that's what Nickelback ended up doing. It it was just keeping the lights on while um, uh, while Glassdoor running about and um, and Jesse Leach was was scoring scoring the first album for uh the kill switch and whatnot but it's, it's i don't mind it because again it's a generational thing i have i have reverence for them because i remember going into halifax one one day with with some money and i couldn't afford um i couldn't afford two cds but my mate came in with me and we bought, we bought silver side up and wonder boy single from yeah. tenacious d and we spent the rest of the evening playing red faction and it was like, this is the greatest day ever. So I've got like a special place for Nickelback. I do understand the trajectory into the place where Imagine Dragons is now, which is this is a procedural thing. It's not music anymore. Um, if you ask me, I think there are some songs in there. You just got to strip the production value down. and You've got yourself a post-grunge band and you've got yourself a post-grunge band with a post-grunge audience, which is fine. Um, but I think the biggest impact they will have in relation to the Roadrunner story is creating that, um, that major interest that, that, which is what triggered those events, which led to Roadrunner 
losing their independent status. Um, and that's, again, like I say, it is, it is the catalyst for better or for worse. Um, yeah, yeah but I, let's, let, I'll, I'll move on to, is it, who's your favourite Roadrunner artist then? Of the, if, I had, if you had to pick one gun to your head? I'm probably going to say Sepultura, I think. Chaos or Root? Because there's no other option, is there? <laughs> well, there, I know, but I don't know, there is actually. I think that that run of four, <laughs> that run of um, Beneath the Remains, Arise, Chaos AD and Roots is the reason why I would pick Sepultura. Yeah. I think it's it's between them and Typo Negative. It is between them and... Oh, it might be Typo, actually. It actually might be Typo. No, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's one of those two. I think, for me, Typo have about three uh, they have a, a, a bountiful endless great songs they have one on they have one or two great like truly great albums and they've got a couple of really good albums but overall like just everything about them is is amazing yeah. um also dead again which is one of my favorites is not actually on roadrunner so no cut that out but, but I, think, I, no, no, I, I that was my first typo record that's a brilliant record it is great so, yeah, yeah, so, um, but I'm yeah, I'm gonna have to go with Sepultura because I think they did to me, they're kind of like the definitive example of what of all the stuff that Roadrunner was. You know, yeah. you've got a very kind of like in 1989, you've got a really kind of this kind of brutal, quite rudimentary, black and the thrash record in Beneath the Remains, yeah, which is you know, borrowing very heavily from Slayer and, you know, comes out of Brazil and is so like earthy and dirt. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a youth, a brilliantly youthful charm about that record, which is, it's probably my fourth favorite of the four, but I still think it's amazing. Mm. I think Arise is fucking unstoppable. And I think there are a lot of people who do think Arise is like the best one. And that to me is where Sepultura become a, a, a ferocious metal band. Like, uh, you know, a rise to me is a death metal record, like mm-hmm. a full-blown death metal record. And, you know, it's it's great. And then when you get to Chaos AD is when you kind of get big hits, big booming, groovy, awesome, you know, and, and but still kind of linked to that underground stuff. And mm-hmm. then Roots, Roots is a funny one because I always say that Roots is, if you're, if you're, a, metal, if you're a metal fan, Roots isn't going to be your favourite. If you're a music fan, it will be. I think metal fans That's... like to get like to get kind of bogged down in how technical things are mm-hmm. and how difficult they are and how interesting and intricate the riffs are. And I think most music fans don't give a fuck about that. They like to <laughs> some sort of emotion. And I think you've got comfortably the best Max Cavalera vocal performance on Roots. Comfortably. Mm-hmm. I think you've got the you may not have the most intricate and difficult music, but you've got the broadest breadth of sonic ideas across mm-hmm. route i think it's just so low as well you know and it ushered in you know, people call it a new metal album i mean it doesn't sound like power man 5000 does it let's no. use it you know it it obviously inspired a lot of things it is it's the new metal in the same way the fear factory inspired metalcore yeah there's there's some there's some dna in there but it's not or, or, or how domination by pantera inspired beatdowns like yeah, yeah i get it like it sounds a bit like that but um i think there's there's way more to that record than than i think people like to 
people like to go, oh, it's the one where they did new metal. There's no mm-hmm. rap on it. There's no like, do you know what I mean? There's no yep. jump the fuck up or, do you know, it's bollocks. I think that record's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's interesting when you mentioned um, if you're a music fan, it's Roots. If you're a meta fan, it's one of the three because there is always debate raging about those four. And I never really engaged in that debate until I started looking at this trajectory um, and those years and going, oh yeah, there is something, there's something potent about the way they delivered that. And there's something potent about the way everyone responded to it because it was still fringe, still yeah. very much fringe up until say Chaos AD when it becomes a bit more of a, of a credible thing. And that's a dynamic, which is important, I think, especially if we're considering people like tarnishing roots with the, uh, the new metal um, uh, tag which is I, I think disingenuous also, I, I, yeah, don't, again like I don't think that's I, I get, that's something that it's like well just listen to the records oh like, dude it, no it is to bring it back it, yeah. it's saying post 2010s Weezer is shit which is a disingenuous assessment of the situation uh, it definitely is yeah I mean yeah. Yeah, I know like it's much cooler to say that Arise is the best and I you know Arise is probably my second favourite of mm-hmm. the four um, and that's putting it above KSAD. And if, if KSAD is the third best album in a list of <laughs> albums, then the first thing has got to be pretty fucking special, I think. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it would probably be Sepultura by a whisker <laughs> away from Type A Negative. I think of probably the most unique band um, of maybe the label's history. I think mine is Typo, but I think I'm, it's because I'm find myself relating to the cynicism uh and kind of the darkness of it no that seems too fucking romantic it's just like a set of funny buggers a set of funny buggers doing music which is deliberately against the grain and it really speak it just speaks to me in a, in a way that they didn't do when i was 25 and i think that's just resonant so the, the irony of this is i hated type of negative when i was a kid yeah. i like didn't understand i thought it was totally serious and it wasn't until i went I, they're not really taking this too seriously are they as when i went oh oh i see oh oh it's amazing now um yeah when you realize music can be that it changes your entire fucking world doesn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean now i like i absolutely love it. i've got the the box i was nearly pulled out the type of negative vinyl box set that i've got there which is like one of my absolute prized possessions but that actually i've got that and the the sepultura vinyl box set behind me for those that are the roadrunner years it's not even the roadrunner years because it's not got against on it um which is no great loss to be fair but uh <laughs> yeah yeah i mean those yeah it was just those two i think to me feel like kind of the definitive the definitive roadrunner bands from that yeah. era, i think skipping around to the end of the story in 2012, I'm just wondering, because it, it occurred to me, I should have asked you this in, in my email, that um, in your capacity as a journalist, obviously you, you've got more of a, I guess you've got a contractual obligation to give a shit about the dynamics of the industry. So when the offices start closing in 2012, do you realise at this point, okay, this is the end of an era, or are you in a position of, well, realistically, the last great signing was, say, Gajira, um, and that kind of period, it's not like the 90s, so really, let's do... The industry's been done a favour by cross-pollinating all those Roadrunner personnel into the other parts of the industry. So what was, like, the day the axe fell, what was it like for you? Um, I mean, I wasn't really properly working that as much as I am now in the music industry at the time, so it's hard to say, but I do remember hearing about it and the sort of... It was painted 
from how I remember, the kind of narrative was like Roadrunner is closing. Roadrunner is yes. And I was like, oh, no, that's awful. It just was another reminder. You know, like we'd had the Astoria had gone in London, where I, like I said I'd seen Slipknot and countless other bands. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. There's this kind of, like, the gentrification of metal and hardcore and punk and stuff has been going on for a, a, a while now. And it's weird that it's so... Like we are, we are back to being super duper underground again, like really fucking underground as a movement, as a genre. And, you know, like it's, it's, it's very, very much underground. I think it's probably gets more respect now than it probably ever has, but it's still not really, it's probably less of a big deal than it's ever been before as well. Um, and the idea of Roadrunner not being there to me was just like, well, this just feels like another nail in the coffin of, I guess a kind of, um, yeah, like it being a kind of feeling like I was part of a genuine, uh, it feels a bit kind of, it feels a bit much to say like, oh, it's a genuine counterculture movement, but it kind of was, you know? Like, I don't, I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's a, a stretch to to paint it like that. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it was our, Roadrunner sort of represented like our forays into popular culture. Like it was the one place where you could go like, well, if I go there, then I've got a shot at actually like at least banging on the door of the mainstream a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's exciting personally. You know, I think ministry headlining Lollapalooza or, you know, fucking Sepultura on the word or like, those things are exciting. They're interesting. You know, mass. You remember Mastodon went on Jules Holland. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like years since anything like that had happened before, and you know, it was just like it was a. It felt like a big deal. It felt like an exciting thing, and you just love to see those little moments. I think I imagined in my head, it's like, well, it's going to be more difficult to do that without something like Roadrunner, because I don't see Metal Blade being able to facilitate that. I don't see Earache being a, like Earache at this point is signing rival sons and, you know, you know <laughs> smoking and stuff. And it's like, I think even they appeared aware that like, well, you know, it's like we need to make money, you know, we'll sign some metal bands, but this is where our bread is buttered essentially. And this mm-hmm. is the priority. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was just sad, you know, it was just sad to see, but then there, there is still a Roadrunner Records. There is still a Roadrunner Records. That is, is true. There is still a Roadrunner Records, and they still are a thing. I mean, you, you, you can, you can go, yeah, but they're not really, and blah blah blah. You know, the music industry and, and labels and stuff now is they're sort of they, they they're, they're much more arbitrary than they ever have been before, ever. And you can self-release something, and you can go on and become a platinum selling artist yeah. or you can go to a major label and you end up broke within a year like i don't think those things they unfortunately whether we like it or not don't really make any difference really and it means that something like roadrunner records can't really mean what it used to mean because it can't because nothing does oh that's such a great way to, sort of, to book in that that the journey of that label because it if it if it died five years later it would, I say, died. If it had been taken over five years later, it could have been, it would have lived long enough to see itself become the villain in that arbitrary world, possibly. Mm. 
but uh, also there's the there's what you said before which is like it was sort of weirdly incestuous seeing all these bands and there's like it was i don't know you put it much better than i could ever articulate <laughs> much better than i and you've 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 thrown some great sound bites out there which i've never thought of in some great angles um let's do the top five rodent records and let's fucking just let's see your list let's do it so you want these i'm going to put these in chronological order go for it because there is no there is no true order is there it changes yeah i day. can't pick a kind of favorite favorite um so i'm gonna pick uh i'm gonna pick uh roots first Mm-hmm. for all the reasons I've just detailed. Don't think we need to go into Roots anymore. Um, October Rust would be my second pick. I think October Rust is the best type of negative album. Um, I think it's the most romantic type mm-hmm. of negative album. Probably the funniest type of negative album as well. <laughs> um, it's The production is beautiful. You know, it's it's them at their, I guess they're, they're least abrasive and their least heaviest but also for me kind of probably their most challenging um i love yeah i love the kind i i love hearing a, you know a metal band lean in on like way before him leaning in on romanticism and it's quite funny to think in an era when you know corn came out and then you've got like the great southern trenkill came out that year like the most brutal pantera album and death metal was still like a big thing and i think like corpse grinder's first album with cannibal corpse came out that year i believe and um yeah and you've got people kind of trying to be heavier and heavier at that point i still think you know the kind of the heaviness wars were being dialed up as much as they possibly could mm-hmm. so for the only platinum selling band or the only kind of gold selling band on that label to turn around and make a Bauhaus pure Lovecraftian romance album is fucking brilliant, fucking brilliant. And like, it could not be more against the grain, like amazing, fucking awesome. I, when uh, I introduce people to typo, I call it sex metal. I think that's yeah, the, quickest, yeah. the quickest way to get the point across. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And particularly on that album, it's like, you know this massive guy being slinky as fuck <laughs> so good um and just the best songs really as well isn't it like some of those sure. songs are just fucking incredible um so that would be my second pick my third pick i briefly mentioned it before would be imprint by vision of disorder mm-hmm. which is the best vision of disorder album uh, there's not as much competition as there is from Rapture and Typo. For that, I think the debut's really good. I think they made some excellent albums. They've made a couple of really good albums since they came back in 2012. Um, but Imprint is... Oh, it's so savage. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's hardcore. Uh, for me, it's the first... It, it's, it's, it's proto-metalcore. Yes. It's metalcore before metalcore was... Absolutely. ...terminology. I mean... Rorschach and Integrity and yes, if you want to go all the way back to Agnostic Front and Crossover and DRI and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Fine. That's that's a thing, definitely, right? It's I'm the not- cleanest, most central line in the family tree. It's it's when you start bringing in uh, melodic vocals and sort of soaring choruses over the top of really complex hard like, metal riffs played mm-hmm. by a hardcore band. Yeah. That kind of, I, I genuinely think that is the blueprint for everything else that went post that. 
And if I'm not mistaken, you get a a lovely um, Phil Anselmo cameo yeah. on one of the songs when he's. I think he's maximum heroin at this point. Yeah, it's it's Phil Anselmo at his most aggressive, and it's 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 death metal Phil Anselmo, and he sounds fucking great on it. But he still sounds like a little baby next to Tim Williams, who has got one of the most unbelievable screams. Like Tim Williams is one of the great fucking lost vocalists ever. That yeah. dude has got an unbelievable voice. He is so so great. And hearing like hearing that record. I mean, there's a few bands that kind of push me in the direction of when I got into shit like Converge and mm. the like. And um, them and Wilhaven would be the two where I'm like, okay, well, that was me getting into really, really extreme hardcore before. Because, you know, I like, like, even hardcore bands I love, like Madball and Stick of It All, yep. or like Earth Crisis as well. Like, you know, all, you know, but Earth Crisis and Madball, obviously, we were both on Roadrunner. And, you know, they, those those bands are amazing, but there's not the kind of the frantic, like Mike Baumbach, the, um, again, unbelievably under, underrated guitarist, Mike Baumbach. Fucking mm. great. And um, yeah, so that would be my number three. If you haven't heard that record, that's probably the, the least sort of big one, I reckon, uh, sure. on this list. Um, you have to go and listen to that record. Uh, number four, I'm going to pick Le Fond Sauvage by Gojira. I nearly yeah. picked Magma, mm-hmm. but I think Le Fon Sauvage is, I mean, it's not actually my favourite Kajira record, but I think it is the best example of why people like Gojira. Right. I want to pick something a bit more modern. I think they kind of took the kind of, the death metal, um, the eco death metal thing to the absolute, pinnacle i don't i don't think they i think magma when people kind of had a go at magma it's like well i don't think they could have done anything after le Fon sauvage that 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 would top that i just don't sure. think that's possible it's yeah. too good at doing that thing um and i don't even think it's the best gojira album i mean they're incredible i've i haven't started listening to gojira i've seen them twice i haven't listened to them until i heard your review the other, the other week yeah so they're one on my list to just work through properly. Listen to Vision of Disorder and some of the obscure shit on Roadrunner part of this project. But for some reason, I've been ignoring Gajira and I've really? been doing oh, myself a disservice. They are absolutely unbelievable, that band. Unbelievable. They're, they're phenomenal. Um, yeah, I, so I wanted to pick something a bit newer and I wanted to pick something really new. And mm. some people might, well, I don't know. Some people might be surprised if they know what I like, but Underneath by Code Orange would be mm. my fifth one. Yeah. Because that is the first time in a long time I hear metal a lot and I get like I and get excited by it. Like I think it's hard to get it's hard to listen to a genre which is quite regimented in what it's meant to be for twenty five years mm-hmm. and to not get a little bit fatigued by it. I know you say something to me about Evile. I'd be interested yeah. in what that was because that was one of the sort of things where I'm like, this is good heard it loads before doesn't mean it's not good if this is your first time hearing a metal band probably think it's really exciting i don't feel like that because i've heard this so many times there are lots of metal bands i've heard lots of metal albums when i get excited about music like really super excited it does still happen that you can get really really excited by music but for me at the moment like i said at the start it's hearing something like clipping 
hearing like experimental hip hop or hearing some kind of ambient dream pop album and going, Oh, I've not really listened to anything like this for a long time. This is really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but Code Orange are one of the few times in the last however many years, probably the last five years or so, where I've heard a metal band who I think are both inc- like incredibly exciting musically and interesting and diverse and mm-hmm. forward thinking and innovative, but also that I think everybody would like. Yeah. Like when I listen to Typo or Fear Factory or those bands, I do think there's such an obvious reverence for that period of Roadrunner. That's why it's great that they're on Roadrunner as well, I think, mm-hmm. because there's such a massive obvious reverence for that period from that band. But also they're tapping into things that I think metal fans don't really even think about that much. Like knowing the kind of hip hop that they listen to, knowing that the kind of electronic music they listen to, knowing about, you know, the tones and the movies and the art that they pay attention to that goes into that. Mm -hmm. I think if you don't, if you, if you yourself don't pay attention to any of that stuff and you just listen to metal, Mm -hmm. I think you listen to Code Orange and go, this is cool. They remind me of Sepultura on Roots or they remind me of Fear Factory. That's great. But if you do have those other reference points, they have so much more and you don't have to have them to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. if you do it makes them seem so much more exciting i think they are fucking brilliant <laughs> that's another band i haven't checked out oh mate you have to do that i'm that's shit at this huh? <laughs> but yeah oh god you yeah they're they're, they're unbelievable code orange yeah yeah was that, was that fifth that is five yeah wow wow that's awesome that's a, a, a great eclectic mix I was I was gonna pick um, I was gonna pick uh, uh, the more things change by Machine Head as well, but um, <laughs> I'm, you know, the wild, I'm wild a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I don't I don't even think I have a top five. Cause I just because I'm still unpacking this as I go through because it just turns out when you when you try and take a magnifying glass to this kind of thing, you realize oh, there's actually a shit ton of stuff that no one's ever heard about. Yeah. that's worth digging into. I had someone send me um album by a band called Anyone. It's just a yeah, way- yeah, I remember that. They're kind of, they're a bit like Jane's Addiction, I think. They they were one of the ones that kind of, it, it, that was a big uh, drop-off. And Step Kings were another one that came at the same time. Yeah, uh, but I, I really like the, the Anyone record. It's just like, I don't remember it's, it. I remember it's, it's, it's sort of like being called acid new metal. Yeah. So it kind of like, it takes the new metal formula, but it makes it, much slower much more chilled out and it just didn't take itself very seriously and it kind of it delivers it at a time where the aesthetic kind of fits that non-serious vibe for example like it's like a tony hawk sort of aesthetic we're just having fun with it and it kind of works for me but yeah there's things like that which which are stopping me from like building a top five list because i'm like mm. but i guess if you ask me today a lot of hype anyone you know they were very much i they i thought they were going to get pushed really fucking hard mm. there was a lot of chatter like this is the next big band that wrote you know it's kind of just after slipknot and this is what i mean like a drop off like anyone were a band who like nobody talks about them now. i'm quite glad you brought them up because i'd forgotten their name but i was going to say there was this band and i do remember like step kings was another one obviously like 36 crazy fist and Down- downer was another one mm-hmm. um uh ultras ultras bank on roadrunner i'm not sure if they were 
or Kilgore. I'm not, I can't actually remember, but there were a few Kilgore. bands. Kilgore, I think, I might think. have been. Um, and like Floodgate and stuff like that was, yeah. that album was really good. Yeah. But, and I kind of had Slow Burn and um, uh, Kais to, not Kais, uh, Karma to Burn and, yeah, and all that stuff. And like, it was, it was such a weird thing, but anyone were a band who, they, they I remember there was a massive thing about them in Metal Hammer. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's they're going to change what music is, and do, and you know they pushed that shit real hard, and just no one went for it. It's kind of mm-hmm. quite hard to get bites. There was a couple of years, I guess, that's why Nickelback was so kind of essential for them because after Slipknot, you're right. They there were a few things they were like, well, somebody needs to bite on this, and it didn't really happen with Glassjaw, didn't really happen with um, anyone, didn't really happen with the Workhorse Movement was another band. It was like, oh, the Workhorse Movement are like southern fried rap band whatever you know what i mean amen as well amen had one album out one really great album um but were just too fucking abrasive and then left i think they didn't get on with the label. <laughs> i think it's it's something to be said about the the ones that don't catch the bite right because i think the unspoken thing is like the cash flow situation at any record label is so fucking delicate it's it's and I see. I say it's a lot about the deals that they gave their their artists because it's usually like five grand for an advance, and that was kind of a lot for the for the debut. But when you think about the amount of stuff they're pushing out every year, and the amount of licensed goods that they're licensed goods, the licensed records from other labels that they're putting out in different territories, yeah. it must be every year is a massive fucking gamble. So to have something like a Slipknot or a Nickelback that's keeping the lights on must have been a massive uh, a massive safety net to allow them to innovate i guess and try and take chances uh and especially in that period yeah for sure i i i i think that you know it was interesting what you said about the kind of balance sheet going up and it not, not looking as good the second year a metal label doing what they were doing should never have expected it to have gone up to that point anyway yep you know what i mean like this is this is the thing where people you know your eyes get a little bit bigger than your belly mm-hmm. and uh you you should never have expected slipknot to happen let alone twice once is mad mm-hmm. twice you fucking nuts it's not gonna happen and, it didn't. They, and then you gotta think in that dynamic um and people's relationship with the numbers this isn't the metal heads who are going oh great our eyes have gone wider it's not gone great we're gonna have loads of platinum this is a then 60 year old dutch opera fan who is at the helm that's the that's the key thing in terms of the decision making from that point on but you would think that even just a basic rudimentary, rudimentary understanding of what the world is like would make people... I mean, this is the thing that I've always found really kind of... The kind of, again, like the post-Nirvana major label rush to sign shit like Helmet and Cop Shoot Cop and the Melrose <laughs> and Drive Like Jehu. Like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, mm. what the fuck were you... Did you honestly think you were going to get the next Nirvana? Like, no, 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 that happens once that happens for one generation you yeah. know you don't get you might make a bit of money out of it like whatever but the idea that you could just sign another slipknot <laughs> it's fucking not like every year we're gonna have another slipknot no no that's a generational that's a once in a generational thing and you look at it and you go well okay so there were yeah okay cliff richard was like the the british elvis and we got a bit of money from, like he sold a lot of records and yeah, there might be something you can tag on next to it. When the Beatles happened and the British invasion happened, yeah, 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 yeah. We managed to sell quite a lot of records of the Burns and we like to sell, you know, the Who came, the Stones and all that kind of stuff came along mm. as well. 
but you're not you're never going to get another Nirvana no <laughs> like, you're not going to find it yeah, oh, I don't know anyway yeah well hopefully I'll unpack that as I go forward <laughs> but yeah I mean I suppose I don't have to worry about it so much anymore um, yeah I want to talk about other stories and things that I might have missed, but I wanted to open up with a, a story which complements your Slipknot, your mate's Slipknot t-shirt story, which yeah. was, um, I was speaking to the king of the road team or the road crew, like the street team from like the early 2000s. Because I yeah. think that's quite important in terms of presence. Um, uh, Ro Coley, um, also known as the Brown Satan, um, he got a t-shirt sent to him. Um, I don't know if it was from Ospest 99, it was just a friend who knew that Slipknot were about to break. And then he went to go see Static X. And then he's wearing the T-shirt. It says people equal shit on the back. Blah, 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 blah. Someone pins him up against the wall and says, where the fuck did you get that T-shirt? Where the fuck is this coming from? Um, and he said, oh, my mate who works at Roadrunner just sent it me. And it was Corey and Clown who thought someone was ripping their shit off. Ha. Huh. Really? Because it came out before anything came out. So it's interesting that there's like two stories of T-shirt related stories about Slipknot before Slipknot actually came out. <laughs> yeah, that's mad. I mean, you know, like I say, it was a it was a pretty mad time. Yeah. Yeah. Real. Any closing comments on Roadrunner? And then I can give you some some stuff about Evil. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, any closing stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at absolutely a definitive uh something which has be like will always be a definitive moment and a definitive thing in the evolution of the popularization of of metal i think mm-hmm. like i think you've got that kind of 80s boom with when new Wobben and priest and maiden and motorhead happened and metal and you know this this whole thing about metal was so big in the 80s and it was the main thing in the 80s and it's like yeah you know like there were a lot of people that became interested in a type of metal in that period but for me what's so interesting about the 90s is that you know maiden and priest almost seem kind of cuddly in comparison with a lot of the shit that happened in the 90s um it was fucking wild. It was it was a wild old thing to see Cannibal Corpse in Jim Carrey films. You know that that is not that is not Iron Maiden on top of the pops. That is something very very different. And Roadrunner were brilliantly positioned to kind of turn, you know. I, to kind of flip the cliches of what metal was meant to be or what heavy music was meant to be on its head. It was able to expose people to so much more than just a really, really cliched idea of what metal used to be 10 years before. What metal became in the in the 90s, I think, is, I mean, by the end of the 90s, arguably, we kind of jumped the shark a little bit. But certainly in that kind of period from 92 up to about 1999, I think, heavy music was in such a kind of interesting place and it wouldn't have been as interesting if it wasn't able to kind of flourish in places which it probably had no right to flourish in and roadrunner kind of facilitated that yeah for a lot of different things you know like i like i said earth crisis and obituary 
and Vision of Disorder and Fear Factory playing main festival stages with the Foo Fighters and Ozzy Osbourne is mad. You know, that is an industrial death metal band. What right have you got to be in that place? Sepultura charting in the top five of the UK albums chart. Like how? You're a death metal band from Brazil. Yeah. Are you lucky anyone knows you're from Brazil? Like, <laughs> I mean, just that alone. Like, if you take the component, the individual component parts of Sepultura, one, you're from Brazil. Like, how many Brazilian bands get big in the UK? One, them. Mm. Two, you're a fucking death metal band. Like, how many death metal bands get big? And like, very, very few. But I don't know, it just perfectly packaged lots of things. It was able to kind of, I think, like I mentioned, there's less tribalization in um, in the world now. And there was a lot more back then. But somehow, just liking heavy music, just liking the sound of aggressive music was enough to kind of sustain lots of people into liking lots of things. And, you know, hardcore death metal, dance music, new metal, groove metal, thrash whatever you want to kind of pin your 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 kind of mask to i think roadrunner kind of perfected it for everyone like they made they made all the best records for a really really long time and you know and then even beyond that you know to kind of have that massive second wind we've not even really spoken much about trivium and kill switch and the stuff that happened at that point but they were still you know relevant yeah, vital, young, exciting bands. What other label could you be on? If you were one of those bands for so many years, if you were a metal band and you had the choice of everything, there's only one place where you would want to be. There's only one place that you would want to be, that you would trust with going, because that, you know, like I say, that it, it, it reads like the definitive list of bands from that period yeah. on one label. There's only a handful. There's only like four or five that we've mentioned that you go like, okay, Corn, Deftones, Pantera, Lib Biscuit, maybe as well. System of the Downs. That's it, isn't it, really? Marilyn Manson. That's it. Mm. Everyone else was on Roadrunner. It's yeah. insanity. Yeah. You fucking schooled me and and then some. I'm going to make a con, uh, concerted effort to listen to Code Orange and Gajira. Do. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you know I've, the way I've been tackling this, man? And this has been my fucking life for the past eight months now. I go on Discogs and I catalog every single Roadrunner record that was not a licensed one because there's a fuck ton in the 80s. That was their bread and butter. And I'll listen to every single one to try and get a vibe from it. And I'm just not in the late 2000s. That's that's why they haven't come across my desk at all. Like, um, but it's such a, it's so much fun to go back and go, what, why is Toxic a relevant thrash metal band? And can I speak to the drummer of Toxic about what they offered the brand and what they offered metal at the time? And that's the job. And um, I'm going to have to do it to Jigajir and Code Orange for the same reasons, because the entire point of this thing is to reverse engineer the, the doings and happenings of Roadrunner and try and see if we can, you know, what can we do for metal today as people of our generation? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll make an effort there. If you want to, let's talk about evil for a bit. <laughs> I liked the comments you made about Thrash Revival is boring as fuck. Eval are good. This new album's good. They're they're local lads for me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I supported them on a few, like when I was playing in bands around Halifax and Huddersfield. So they've always got like a special place, but that's rose tinted glasses. So it was good to hear like a good objective view of, of where thrash revival is and, and, and things like that. But it's when I started thinking about thrash revival, I had two questions. Um, one, what, at what point is thrash, thrash revival just called thrash, right? When do we draw that line? And secondly, when I look back at like Eval Gamma Bomb, Bonded by Blood, and those bands that came out in the mid-2000s, this was an earache initiative, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually. There were a lot of, yeah, Min- Municipal Waste were on, were they, on, they were on earache, weren't they? Mini Waste? Were they? I'm going to check that. I know they're on Nuclear Blast now. Yeah, I think Art of Party, and I'm pretty sure that was on earache. I'm pretty sure it was. That was the best performing Thrash Arrival album. There's been nothing that's topped that. Yeah, I think that's the kind of, that's the one that you look at and you think like, oh, that's clearly that's the pinnacle. very, very good. I mean... Eric, yeah, they're Eric. Yeah, I thought it was. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Well, when does it? Be, when does Thrash Revival become Thrash? Well, I guess when Thrash starts to, when the Thrash Revival starts to adopt its own sort of sense of personality, I think is the main thing for me. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, because I'm, I'm because my angle is going to be it's never you're never going to get sort of like Bay Area thrash late eighties early nineties vibes. You're never going to get like um, a Gamma Bomber and Eval exploding and playing arenas. It's always going to be this nearly nostalgic, not nostalgic. That I think they do put their own stamps on it, but it's not like a it's not like a movement of personality. I think it's just, I mean, the one, like the one band that stand out for me, if you want to call it thrash, and the fact that I don't even really think of them as, a, I have to sort of actually go, oh, I suppose they're kind of a thrash revival band, but I don't think of them as one, is Power Trip, yeah. right? And that's because Power Trip, um, they're not really doing anything new, but they're doing something that feels so fresh. Yeah. I, I agree. Like, I, I think that the Evil album that's just come out is good. I remember thinking Enter, Enter the Grave was good. I think the Art of Partying is really good. But... You didn't. I, I don't look at Power Trip and go, you're kind of cosplaying 1986 Bay Area. Yeah. And so much of that is like, we dress like this and our album covers look like that. And we have, we have song titles that sound like that. And we're kind of talking about the same thing. It's produced the same. Oh, we'll get Fleming Rasmussen in to produce it. Like, <laughs> how fucking blatant can you be? Um, you know, I, I mean... Luckily, we didn't get to the, the Bob Rock era of the, the Thrash Metal Revival. That wouldn't have been much fun. But I, yeah. Do, yeah, I, do, I just think that, like, it's absolutely fine to be a band who are a version of... I mean, you know, there's there's Greta Van Fleet and <laughs> bands like that. There's, um, you know, there's lots of things that are just kind of rehashes of stuff that's happened in the past. And it's yeah. often all right, but I think when you suddenly get, like, nine or ten of them, I just remember listening to it and being like, well, I don't, I don't feel like you've got, it's not even that you don't have an original thought in your head, but collectively you as a scene and a movement, you are so wedded to this thing that happened in the past and with no reinvention at all, mm-hmm. like, like none, like, like Havoc are a really great, like, I, I really like Havoc. Yep. Like they're, they're fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Right? But they do not have an original idea in their collective heads that didn't get that hadn't all that hasn't already been done mm-hmm. in 1986-1987. And Thrash is a really, I think more maybe maybe more than any other subgenre of metal. Thrash, I think, is the most um, 
creatively stifling subgenre. Because mm-hmm. even death metal, you can get melodic death metal and you can get kind of brutal death metal and then you can get slam and you can get deathcore and you get like, you, like and people are death metal is just death metal. But even death metal has adapted and nuances. Yeah, over the years. And I actually think you look at the box of what death metal can be and it's still pretty small in terms of music, but you can you can get around a few more places. The box for what thrashes is tight is so small mm. and i think it takes a really it, w- it would take a really really special band to do something that i mean you know for me like you look at the big four of thrash yep and each one of them have their own unique spin on a thing and no one else is ever going to be able to do anything which is topping that i don't think or, or changing that it doesn't mean there aren't good thrash bands around mm. testament were great obviously i mentioned power trip I think Havoc are really good as well. I think Municipal Waste, we've already said, are, are, are great. Shit like Bonded by Blood, obviously, and a lot of stuff that Creator did. I mean, Creator have got about four or five fucking great records. Yeah, yeah. Early Sepultura, again, to mention that. Like, you know, there's, there's loads of really good bands in Thrash, but I do feel like, how much of this do I need in my life? There is so much music in the world. Do you know what I mean? There is so much music, not just so much Thrash. There is so much thrash. There is so much music in the world that to go, I am going to listen to the 150,000th version of this. I I just can't find myself getting that excited about it. I, it's, it's really difficult to get excited about that. I think you're right. I think you're right on all points. And I think it's, I think the market... Uh, the market uh, restricts it to if you want to go and have a thrash night, if you want to have like a, uh, a heavy metal parking lot evening, there will be an option for you within 25 miles of your house on a Friday night. And I think that's where it is, where it should be and where it's almost designed to be by the bands themselves. The reason I'm really excited about Eval is because momentum was lost and because there was a dynamic shift and because they're a lot older now than they were and the priorities are completely different and the incentive structure is more realistic. So I think if there's ever going to be an innovation, it's going to be in the next five years with that band. Like I think they're in a completely different place than they were when Digby from Eric said, we're doing Thrash Revival. Let's get you on this compilation record. And I just think everything's poised for something interesting to happen. And Hell Unleashed is good. It's a really great record. And I think it is a just a balls out Thrash record and it's kind of... In the wider spectrum, it is a rehash. But when you think of the personalities there and what's happened in the last 10 years, I think it is, it's potent now. Because they tried to do it with um, Skull and, and um, Five Serpents Teeth. They tried to move it into a bit more of a progressive place and use Matt's vocals in a more dynamic way. And it does sound different. It doesn't sound like... It doesn't sound, you can't like compare, say, Enter the Grave and, and Five Serpents to... I can kill them all and, and master puppets or anything like that. It's not that. It's not that breadth. But it it was a development, and I think if they just keep the hunger there in this new dynamic of them all personally, it should be really interesting and really good. And they're local lads, so I'll always back them. Yeah, I mean it's a good album. It's definitely like if you want to listen to a metal album and you haven't, you've never heard before, and you like thrash, I think you you would have a you'd really enjoy that record. Mm. Um. It just depends how much you want to do that. Some people just want to listen to endless thrash metal, and that's absolutely fine. If that's yeah. what they want to do, that is absolutely fine. I personally would find that 
quite a dull existence, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, that's that's up to them if that's what they want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's cool. And so somebody should be making those records for them, I guess. I just think it would be it would be better for the continued development of music as an art form rather than metal as a set of tropes for, yeah. band, for bands to actually go, fuck it, do you know what, fuck it, thrash metal has been done. Because mm-hmm. it has, it has been done. Like, you you ain't making and justice for all. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Like, it's been completed. That game has been, the, the high score has been reached. Not only was it reached, but there's also a backlog from the 80s which didn't make it. Yeah. yeah there's a lot there, which is now there. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's lots of really, really good bands from that period. And then I think it all just ran out of ideas and no one's come up with any new ideas. And that is the problem. Like even, you know, even the biggest bands in that scene, Megadeth don't, don't have any new ideas. Slayer didn't have any new ideas for the last few records. Metallica certainly don't appear to have any new ideas. And then when they do have a new idea, and like Lulu, they get a fucking shit on for it. Mm. I mean, say what you want. I mean, I know I, I don't want to go about talking about Lulu too much, but that is not A, not a Metallica album, and B, a brand new idea, and people fucking hate it. So why, why would you? Why would you take a risk? Mm. Yeah. I want to end on a more optimistic note, but I don't know what to do with it. Well, it's still really good. Metal is still really good. <laughs> <laughs> <Hang on. laughs>